will be in Revelation chapter 15 this morning. Revelation chapter 15, under the title, The Victory Song of the Conquerors. So before we begin the Lord's table, I want to focus our attention just on the first four verses of this chapter. Chapters uh, 15 and 16, chapter we're entering into and the next chapter, they kind of go together. They they describe God's final judgment upon the earth, the last big judgment before Christ comes. In chapter 15, what we'll find is that God prepares seven angels to pour out bowls of wrath upon the earth. And in chapter 16, those judgments are poured out. Now, in chapter 14 that we just finished, we saw that God, even in the context of judgment, continues to call sinners to repentance. He sends these angelic messengers, right? Who are go through the whole world, crying out, warning, calling people to turn from following Satan's rule, the rule of the beast and the false prophet, and to refuse to worship their image and take their mark and to fear God and glorify him and worship him. Those are three specific verbs, to fear God, to glorify him and to worship him. And when this call is over, the final hour of judgment is announced. And we looked at that passage last week, this this gruesome description of the final judgment. The judgment of the wicked is likened at the end of chapter 14 to the harvesting of grapes. The angel casts in a violent motion his sickle across the earth and the people are reaped and thrown, as it were, into the great winepress of the wrath of God, it says. And the last verse of the chapter says that the winepress was trodden outside the city and the blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's, horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. In literal terms, in an untold swath of bloodshed and carnage that could fill the whole country of Palestine. This is a brief introduction of the judgment that we are about to read of in the following chapter. So we continue to read, and I don't know if you, if you, if you read something that is kind of horrible and, and, and you, you like that kind of thing and you're like, bring it on, I want to, see, I want to get it full, fully. Or if you're like me, you kind of avert your eyes a little bit and you're like afraid to read ahead. Uh, that, that's the way I am. I, maybe I'm a little cowardly when it comes to that kind of thing. I feel like that's the point we're at in, in Revelation. We, we continue to read, but sort of with eyes averted, not wanting to look fully at this horrible judgment that is going to follow. But what we read first is not God's wrath being poured out. Instead, John takes us to the scene around the throne of God where we meet seven angels whom God is going to commission to pour out his wrath. And then John also calls our attention to something that we probably didn't expect. Prior to the narrative of God's wrath being poured out, John describes the saints of God who have been killed by the beast. And what are they doing? They're singing a song about God's judgment. So let's pick up the reading here in verse 1 of chapter 15. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing. Seven angels with seven plagues. That's what they're called. The judgments are called plagues. Note that which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire, 
and also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God, the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy, and nations will come and worship you. For your righteous acts have been Revealed. I have to tell you, the more I studied the scene of the opening verses of chapter 15 this week, the more I amazed I became at what is actually taking place here. In fact, we notice that John himself at the beginning calls this scene great and amazing. And to help us appreciate the significance of it all, I'm going to first look at this great choir event in the big picture context before going a little deeper into the song, of itself, the song itself. There's, there's this little discovery tool that probably all of us were taught as early as grade school that is actually a very useful uh, tool for studying the Bible even as adults. And I'm going to use this little tool this morning to help us wade into the text. The, the tool is simply called the five W's. Remember that? Who, where, what, when, and why. Now, I know there's how in there too or whatever. We're going to ignore that. We're just going with the five W's this morning, okay? So let's start by asking the question, who is singing? John describes them in verse 2. Those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name, standing beside the sea of glass with the harps of God in their hands. When it says they have conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name, it's a reference back to chapter 13 where this powerful ruler known in Revelation as the beast is raised up by Satan himself in order to rule over the earth. And Revelation 13 says that he will be searching the followers of Christ to try to, searching them out to try to imprison them, to try to execute them because they refuse to worship him. And along with this beast, the devil also calls a figure forth known as the false prophet. And he constructs this image, just like Nebuchadnezzar does in, Nebuchadnezzar, in Daniel chapter three. And, and he causes the earth to worship this image. And he also requires everyone to bear the mark of the beast, which is the number of its name on their palm or forehead, if they are going to be able to buy or sell anything, controlling your ability to obtain food, or water, or medicine, or anything will be their way of making sure everyone is accounted for and everyone is participating in this uh, system of false worship on the earth at this time. We looked at the situation in some detail back in chapter 13. This is what the phrase, the beast, its image, and the number of its name refer to, what we looked at in chapter 13. So how do these singers conquer the beast. What do they do to overcome him? Well, it's obvious. They were killed by the beast. They were killed by this false system of worship. And now they are with the heavenly father and the lamb, Jesus Christ. You remember, of course, that conquering in the book of Revelation is not defeating or escaping your enemies here on earth. Conquering in Revelation is remaining faithful 
to love and follow and put your faith in Jesus Christ unto the end, no matter what, even if it means your martyrdom. That's what conquering is in Revelation because they can kill your body, but that is only a transition into an eternity of peace and rest and rejoicing with the Lord. While Satan and the beast and the false prophet are uh, killed. In fact, they're cast alive into the lake of fire along with those who followed them and they will be judged for eternity. So in the end, those who put their faith and trust in, in the Lord and hold on to him are the real victors. They're the only victors. So these are martyrs who stand here in this chapter. They died for Christ. They died bearing witness to the truth. And they have the harps of God in their hands, which likely means God gave them harps. These are harps from God. I meant to show you this now. I accidentally clicked it a minute ago. But uh, in the Greek language, the word harp, I wanted to point this out to you, is, is actually the word uh, kithara. We still use that word today. So many of our English words are just Greek words cleaned up, you know. They're put into English. We don't say kithara. We say githara, Right? We say guitar. That's the same word. That's where it's from. And I want you to get some of you get excited about that. Uh, they're not all singing uh, with guitars in the text. I mean, this is not a time where they're going to jam for the lamb, if you know what I mean. You know, all standing around, you know, doing this kind of thing. But the ancient kathara is this instrument that you see in the context of worship all throughout the scripture. So they're worshiping the Lord here with this particular instrument. But the most significant thing that we see this instrument in the context uh, is, is about the worship. It's, it's like temple worship. So these people are singing to the Lord and they have refused to bow to the earthly religious system and now they've been translated to be with the Lord and they are victors, they are conquerors and they are there worshiping him. Now, where are they? That's the, that's the, second, that's the next W. Where are they singing? And when we find this out, it helps us to appreciate the, the scene even more. John says in verse 1 that he sees a sign in heaven. So we know that they are not on the earth. And in verse 2 here, it says, he sees what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire. I don't know if you saw that. And the first thing you thought is, oh no, that's terrible. Because, of course, Revelation talks about the lake of fire and the eternal destiny of unbelievers. But this is a different sea. This is actually the same sea that John mentions all the way back in chapter four, verse six, where he describes the scene around the throne of God. And John says, before the throne, there was a sea of glass like crystal. By the way, the, the song before the throne of God kept going into my mind when I, was, when I was reading this. And I thought, wow, we don't have all the images in our mind of what it actually looks like around the throne of God. We've got to re, uh, imagine this, this kind of crystal fiery sea. And notice John says, as it were a sea of glass. And in chapter 15 that we're reading, he says, what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire. There are sometimes in Revelation, you notice John struggles to put into words what he's describing. That The Lord tells him, write down what you see. And sometimes he's like, I'm not sure what I'm looking at. And so he says, it, it's kind of like this. What a glorious scene we're going to behold when we are with the Lord. We have no idea how to imagine it. But what we have here is at least the saints of God gathered around this throne beside the expanse of something that is like crystal and fire, a sea reflecting God's majesty and his judgments, and they are singing. Now, what are they singing? John identifies the song in verse 3. 
they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. Now, this is remarkable. There are two descriptions here, the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb. They're not two different songs. It's just two different phrases to describe the same song. It's called the song of Moses because these martyrs are standing on the side of the sea, having reached the shores of heaven as the victors, very much like the children of Israel had stood beside the shores of the Red Sea when God first rescued, rescued his people from Egypt. If you think about it, the judgments that the angels are getting ready to pour out, remember what I pointed this out, they're called plagues. So we're already being reminded of Egypt and the plagues that God once poured out upon those people to demonstrate his power and to vindicate his name and to vindicate his people. But after Moses had led them to the Red Sea, of course, you remember, they were trapped with no place to go. They were hemmed on either side with the sea in front of them and the whole Egyptian army bearing down upon them, about to destroy them. And God did the impossible. He opened the sea and saved his people and let the sea come across on those who hated them and destroyed the Egyptian power. And those who had seen the majesty and power of God and refused to turn to him in Egypt were destroyed in the Red Sea. So the, Egypt, the, the, the Israelites are on the shoreline and the Egyptian army is drowned in the sea and the Israelites are saved and they begin to sing this song of victory. One of the verses is what we used for our call to worship this morning. They start singing, I will sing to the Lord for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider, the Egyptian horse and rider, he is thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and song. He has become my salvation. This is my God and I will praise him. My father's God and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his host, he cast into the sea. His chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. I mean, you can hear them just saying, yes, this is what happened. This is what our God did. Your right hand, O Lord, is glorious in power. Your right hand shatters the enemy. You can just hear the rejoicing. But this is also called the song of the Lamb. And that is because the only reason they are able to stand on the shore of heaven singing and rejoicing in their salvation is because they were saved by the blood of the Lamb who was slain for them. This is what we read back in chapter 12, verses 11 and 12. After Satan was cast out of heaven and confined to the earth, there's this loud voice from heaven shouting praise about the saints of God. And the voice says, and they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. In other words, they did not stop speaking for the Lord and they were killed for it. And that is what, how they conquered the beast. Because they loved not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. So that is what they are singing. But there is another important question that helps us to understand the full significance of this chorus. And it is the question, when are they singing? I want you to think this through. In chapter 14, as we saw over the past couple of weeks, the final call to repent and turn to God is given. And then the announcement that the hour has come with a metaphorical description of souls going to judgment like reaping on the earth. 
And then here in chapter 15, the angels come forward with these plagues that are going to be poured out. He says, I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last. For with them, the wrath of God is finished. That is, the wrath of God will come to a terrible climax. Then we have the scene where the conquering saints are singing that we just looked at. And then in verse 5, we will see, beginning next week, Lord willing, the narrative will continue as God commissions these angels to pour out their plagues upon the earth. So this is actually a curious place, if you think about it, for John to show a heavenly choir. I mean, I can imagine a more logical place to put it after the plagues are poured out, Christ comes, the victory is won, it's all obvious to everybody, and the saints of God are there singing God's praise. That's a great place for a song of victory. But instead, the scene of singers around the throne of God is shown to us as the angels are preparing, as the bow is being drawn back for judgment, as the sword is being raised. Why put this scene here And the answer to the question, I think, tells us everything about why the saints are singing. Why are they singing? This is the one question that John does not answer explicitly. But if we put everything together we've seen so far, I think this is what we get. Do you know why there is a song of rejoicing at this point in the narrative? Because the martyred saints are doing more than rejoicing in their deliverance they see that the final judgment is about to come from God and they are cheering him on. The Lord Jesus, their champion, is about to break through the skies and conquer his enemies and their enemies once and for all. And they are praising him and showing their eternal support as those who are on His side, it's not unlike, in my mind, team members who have already been carried off the playing field in a fierce matchup. But now the first string is finally coming into the game. And everyone knows it will be no contest. Jesus Christ and all of those who are with him will be decisive victors. And those who hated and killed them will finally be judged And their vindication will be unmistakable and Jesus will reign and they're cheering him on. And this is what they sing. But I think we need to pause and reflect upon this for a few minutes because their singing is a celebration and a rejoicing of the most horrific cataclysmic judgment ever leveled against humankind. And for those who have refused to turn to God, this is their doom. But think about that. After this judgment is poured out, they are all dead and confined to hell. And the only thing that will happen to them after this is that they will be resurrected only to be condemned for eternity into the lake of fire. And yet these saints of God, these victors are singing about it. From one perspective, it seems a little coarse, somewhat grim, even maybe lurid. To us, the idea of people being judged and cast into the lake of fire is a horrifying idea. In fact, there are modern authors who have said we need to rethink our whole theology of hell because it's really not true. It's just a myth that the Gospels and the other authors of the New Testament borrowed from pagan mythology in order to scare people into following their religion. And if you've been taught these false ideas 
as a child and have grown up believing them, you have been emotionally and spiritually abused, we're being told. And while we recognize that these authors are denying the truth that we find in God's word, we still find it difficult not to sympathize with them just a little. We don't relish the idea of final judgment and an eternal lake of fire where people are tormented. We don't celebrate this thought. In fact, it causes us to shudder if we think about it. So how can these saints of God around his throne be so overjoyed? And I think that the answer to this question can be very instructive for us and lead us to a better understanding of our God and what he does. Because we need to keep two things in mind. First, we need to keep in mind these martyred saints of God singing around the throne, they've been made perfect. That's how Hebrews 12 puts it, by the way. Uh, They're the saints of God made perfect. That is, they are now sinless. They have unfallen minds and hearts for the first time. Their affections are now restored to desire what God loves and despise what God hates. So they are in a better position than we are to determine what to celebrate and what not to celebrate. Second, we cannot forget that God judges the world and punishes the wicked having full knowledge of what he is doing. And while we cannot always understand everything that God is doing, we can trust him that he is doing the right thing. So the victory song that the perfected conquering martyrs sing, even as terrible judgment is about to be poured out upon the earth, helps us to appreciate the coming wrath of God because of four divine realities. I want to just tick through these rather quickly this morning. What are these four divine realities that they're singing about? There's, there's more than four, by the way. We could, I think we can get up to maybe 15, but I'm just going to do four uh, big ones this morning. First of all, the works of God are inscrutable. That's what they're singing about. Inscrutable means unable to be fully comprehended. Because the song begins, great and amazing are your deeds. The word translated amazing is a Greek word that means marvelous. That is, it causes us to marvel or wonder because we can't really fully understand it. We just have to say, wow, how do you describe that? So these two words, great and amazing, combine to give us the idea that there are some things about God, especially things that he does, that we will never be able to comprehend like his judgment. Do you ever wonder why God did something or allowed something to happen in your life or the life of someone else that you love? Do you ever study theology and discover things about God that you can't reconcile, like the tension between God's choosing people for salvation and the open invitation that anybody can come and be saved? I do. Do you ever think that when we are gathered with each other around the throne of God on the new earth, rejoicing, perfected our outer shell, having fallen away, having our new resurrected bodies that finally, finally will be able to answer all the questions about God that has puzzled us in this life. Don't bet on it. There will probably be many things about God that are still inscrutable when we're in glory with him. They're not inscrutable, hard for us to understand, just because we are fallen creatures. They're inscrutable because God is transcendent in his wisdom and knowledge and will always be infinitely beyond us. Always. Just look at these perfected saints singing around God's throne in in the heavenly temple. They still confess that the works of God are mysterious to them. 
marvelous, unable to be fully comprehended. And you know what? That should make sense to us because if the God of the Bible is the transcendent, powerful creator that the Bible says he is, we ought to expect that we can't understand everything about him. And so our inability to understand him does not point to the fact that he's less than he declares him, himself to be. It's, he's more than he declares himself to be. I think that when we consider the terrible judgment of God to come, it helps us to trust in God's wisdom and appreciate the fact that there are things about God that we cannot possibly understand. But that doesn't mean we can't trust him, that there isn't an answer to the wise questions. There are answers to why questions, but we might not understand them all. But not only can we better understand God's coming judgment, appreciate it when we learn that the works of God are inscrutable, but also when we are reminded that the ways of God are right. The ways of God are right. Because the song again combines two words in the third line of the song. He says, just and true are your ways. And at the end of the song, we see once again, for your righteous acts. And that that word righteous is the same uh, Greek word that you see there with just. Your righteous acts have been revealed. They're calling the judgment of God his righteous acts. God's judgment is righteous. And these two words in this first phrase, justice and truth, they join together to express the idea that God always does everything perfectly right. Now, again, we might not be able to understand why, because his works are inscrutable, but we can know that his inscrutable works are the products of his just and true ways. The word just is depicted in the Old Testament as a plumb line. Most of you know what a plumb line is. It's a weight suspended freely on a string that gives the exact vertical line. Something that is just is morally plumb. It's straight and right. In fact, there is a particular angle where the vertical line is precisely perpendicular to the baseline. Of course, we call this a right angle. And it's called a right angle or a just angle because the vertical line is plumb, perfectly plumb to the horizontal line. It's no coincidence that in both English and Greek and other languages as well, actually, the word right and the word just actually come from the same root word. In fact, in the New Testament in particular, you can substitute the word just for right and justice for righteousness. And if you know your theological terminology, then you already know that the word justified means declared to be righteous or declared to be in the right. When God justifies us because we have placed our faith in the death of his son for our sins and his resurrection, what we celebrate around the table this morning, he declares us to be in the right in his sight. In other words, through faith in Christ, we are plumb in the sight of God. We are made perfectly straight in his sight. Perfectly aligned. Aligned with what? Well, that's just the point. God is the only one who is truly just. His will and his word are perfectly straight, perfectly right. So when a carpenter is constructing a building, he doesn't say, well, you know, that looks straight enough to me. You don't see a good carpenter doing that kind of thing. He doesn't say, well, you know, that feels right enough. He knows that what might appear to look straight and plumb to him because of the surrounding context may not be straight at all. So he has to appeal to a perfect standard for what is plumb or straight or right. In the same way, what we think might be right 
or just may not be truly right or just. To the point here, we are tempted to wonder if God is being just and fair when he condemns people to judgment and eternal punishment. Because we do not know the full context. We do not know the mind of God. We are not perfectly straight. Even our best ideas about stuff should be suspect when we compare it to God's perfectly plumb standard of justice. The word truth means something that is completely consistent. That is why I say, and what, uh, what I say and what I do has to co- perfectly correspond with the reality of what God's word says. Otherwise, I am not true. Again, God's ways are right because they correspond precisely with the reality of his word. Now, there's something else here that this song helps us to appreciate. The essence of God is holy. Because look closely at the words of the song again. He says, you alone are holy. Now, what does that mean? Because there are many things in the word of God that God declares to be holy besides himself. The Sabbath is holy in Genesis 2, holy ground at the burning bush in Exodus 3, holy people, holy oil, holy garments, holy temple, the list goes on and on. But the victorious saints sing that God alone is holy because holiness is part of God's essence. It makes him who he is. It separates him from all other beings. Anything declared to be holy in the Bible derives its holiness from God. One of the leading expressions of God's holiness is that he is perfectly sinless and therefore he cannot even entertain the notion of sin or tolerate sin. Otherwise, he would cease to be God. He would deny his own essence. So God, because of who he is in his essence, a holy God must judge sin. But even in God's judgment of sin, we are reminded of God's love and mercy because God sent his own son into the world to bear the punishment of his wrath so that he could bring us to salvation. And finally, this song helps us to appreciate the fact that the worship of God is inevitable. In other words, all people and nations will recognize that God is the Lord of all. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess in one way or another, either gratefully in love and devotion because God is their God or begrudgingly under protest because they have rejected God and actually hate him and yet they must admit who he is. And this comes from these rhetorical questions in the song in verse four. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? And the answer is no one. They will all fear and glorify your name when your judgment is poured out. And then he says, all nations will come and worship you. Now, you might remember what the first angel cries out in chapter 14 when the final call from God to repent and turn to him comes. In Revelation 14, verse 7, he says, Fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come and worship him. God is warning all the earth to turn to him by fearing him and glorifying him and worshiping him. And that call goes out today and it will go out then. And in our text, in Revelation 15, 4, the song declares that they will do all of these things. They will fear and glorify and worship. The same Greek words, by the way, that we see in chapter 14, verse 7. This is no coincidence. There is a direct correlation between what the angel is calling the people of earth to do in chapter 14 and what they will do someday. Either way. You see, God is not mocked. 
If he is the holy creator, his righteous character will be vindicated. And if people do not turn to fear and glorify and worship God through faith, then the righteous judgment of God will wring that praise from their lips on that great and terrible judgment day. So these are at least four of the ways that this song helps us to appreciate God's judgment, even as we struggle to understand it. We realize that the works of God are inscrutable. The ways of God are right. The essence of God is holy and the worship of God is inevitable. God has given them every chance to repent. I will not say that these things will chase away all of the angst and the tension that we might feel about God's judgment as we consider it now. But these reasons encourage us to continue to trust God, knowing that at the least, we will one day in our perfected form with the mind of Christ be able to look upon the judgment of God and feel a great sense of satisfaction and a great sense of victory, knowing much more fully that we under, than, than we understand now that God is true and right and holy and therefore his judgment is true and right and holy. This is the victory song of those who have conquered through Christ. Let's pray together.